Once you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Octavia's Parables. I am Adrian Marie Brown. I'm Toshi Regan. And we are beginning our second season with you all. And for this season, we're going to be diving into Octavia E. Butler's Parable of the Talents, the sequel to the Parable of the Sower, which we read last season, and part of the Parables Trilogy, the third book of which is unpublished, but maybe we'll magic some way to get it to you. Um, and before we dive into the content, Toshi, how are you doing? How are you coming into this second season uh, of this experiment? I'm so hyped to get into this. This this is right on time. I mean, maybe at every era of our lives, we can say Octavia is right on time. But yes. wow, this is specifically in detail right on time. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. And I am really excited to get back to this, and I'm really excited that our readers are excited for us to get back to this. We have gotten so much beautiful, delicious invitational pressure (laughs) to return, um, (laughs) to get back to work, and to keep delivering the goods. So we want to thank you all for staying with us through the first season and making it a huge success, and let's keep going. Let's keep reading. I want want to get Parable the Talents on the New York Times bestseller list. That's right. (laughs) <laughs> so, Get that book. so be it, see to it. Yeah, let's do it. Um, we are very excited to announce that we have a website now. Um, it Yay. is at readingoctavia.com, readingoctavia.com. So um, in this phase, you'll be able to go there, see the episode transcripts. Um, if you missed those from last season, you're reading along and each episode will be posting um, the transcripts for this season. And eventually you'll be able to get each episode with its own page. So we're, we're, we're building the site with a beautiful company called And Also Two. Um, they're delightful and magical and have really been a blessing to work with. So check it out. Check out our website. We're growing up. We get to be like real Pinocchio became real. All right. So some announcements we have for you before we dive into our content is that Toshi and I are both going to be a part of some upcoming Mm -hmm. Octavia-related events. I'm going to be the keynote at the New Suns Feminist Literary Festival, March 5th through the 7th, and that's happening online. If you go to the Barbican Center, B-A-R-B-I-C-A-N-C-E-N-T-R-E, You'll be able to get information for how to view um, the New Suns Literary Festival if you want to participate in that. And I'll be in conversation with Ama Josephine Budge about Octavia's work um, as the keynote conversation for that. So that's one thing that's coming from me. And then Toshi, what are you going to be doing? Yeah, I'm going to be doing something pretty cool. Um, We're going to do a set of music um, featuring some songs from uh, the opera Octavia E. Butler's Parable of the Sower at the Confluence Octavia E. Butler Conference. It's happening from March 6th to 8th. You would go to stkates.edu backslash events 
and you will see that the conference up and it's open and free to the public. You just have to register. Um, our show is going to be on March the 6th at 8 p.m. Eastern time. And it was it was a lot of fun. We already filmed it here in New York at the City Winery. And it was a blast. So I really, really want to share it with everybody. I am excited about it. I love any time you're like, oh, I just recorded a set. <laughs> and then I have just anticipation because I'm like, <laughs> then I will get to see a set. All right. So here we are, Parable of the Talents. And Toshi, you bring us into our prologue. Yes, I will. Here we are, energy, mass, life, shaping life, mind, shaping mind, God, shaping God. Consider we are born not with purpose, but with potential. Mm. And um, yeah, thank you for all of that, Octavia. I really appreciate it. So basically, we are getting um, introduced to our storyteller for this whole journey. And um, what we know is that our storyteller is the child of Lauren Alamina and Ben Cole. Yes. And um, she is, she she has a lot of feelings, um, really, yep. <laughs> <laughs> so many feelings, in particular about her mom. She is just, she just kind of not here for her mom. But what we find out is that, is that she she needs to really explore the life of her mother in order to understand herself. She's a scholar, yeah. and the way that she's going to do that is write her own book about about her mom, about Earthseed, and then and we're being taken on this journey with her. Mm-hmm. We don't know what her name is. She is just writing her notes. She kind of sets sets us up, and I think it's kind of cool because it starts to set up if you didn't read Parable of the Sower. It starts to like kind of put you into the journey, um, yeah. and she uh, she lets you know about Earthsea. She lets you know about God is change, and then she had quotes: "All that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change." And she says mm. these words are harmless, I suppose. And metaphorically true, at least she began with some some <laughs> species of truth. And now she's touched me one last time with her memories, her life, and her damned earth seed. Wow. That's how yeah. we that's how we starting. That's how we get started. <laughs> that's how we and starting. I remember the deep respect I felt for Octavia Butler when I when I read this prologue the first time that I was like, so you have us completely smitten with Lauren as this protagonist. Um, by the end of the sower, we've seen her go through so much. And then you're going to start us off here with uh, someone who appears to be her greatest critic telling the yeah. next phase of this story. And I also love the rigor of, you know, in order to understand who I am, I must begin to understand who, who my mother was. So I appreciate that we're going to dive into these archives with this mysterious young person. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And as uh, you know, everybody who's a parent right now, that's, <laughs> that's listening. Yes. Yes. Catch that, your feelings. Yeah. <laughs> catch them. <laughs> yeah. Catch those feelings. Just know those feelings. Right. Um, I feel like that is one of the great, like, 
one of the contracts, part of the contract, the parental contract is like your child will survive you. Your child will critique you. Um, mm-hmm. And if you're lucky, your child will still love you <laughs> inside yeah. of all of that. And um, yeah, we definitely get a, a, a lot of examples of that here. Yes, we so do. So my instinct so. is that we should also hear about chapter one and then and then sort of head into the, the starting questions here. So yes, um, and I'm excited about this first chapter. Like All right. a lot is happening here. Because it's, so. it's very full. Here we are, y'all. Mm-hmm. We're in the year 2032. Mm-hmm. And from Earthseed, the books of the living, we give our dead to the orchards and the groves. We give our dead to life. And uh, we also get darkness gives shape to light as light shapes the darkness. Death gives shape to life as life shapes death. The universe and God share this wholeness, each defining the other. God gives shape to the universe as the universe shapes God. And we hear uh, right away from um, from Bancole, from the Memories of Other Worlds by Taylor Franklin Bancole. And Bancole is, is basically giving us a history to why we might be where we were, and he's naming where we were. And he says, I have read that the period of upheaval that journalists have begun to refer to as the apocalypse, or more commonly, more the pox, lasted from 2015 through 2030, a decade and a half of chaos. This is true. The pox has been a much longer torment It began way before 2015, perhaps even before the turn of the millennium. It has not ended. I love Ben Coley. I love Ben Coley. And he goes on to to basically just name all of the situations that, you know, from from climate, the economy, uh, sociological crisis, and, um, and how people name these things. Like, there's something wrong the climate is out of control. Like there's something wrong. The economy is out of control. <laughs> like it's something wrong, yes. but they never really put it on the hands of the humans and say, the humans are causing climate crisis. The humans are um, the ones making the economy and causing all of this like desperate conditions among, among people. The humans right. are making decisions. And, and tail um, Ben Coley says, this is mm. why we have the pox. We have the pox mm-hmm. because we've made it and we've continued it and we have not done the things and taken responsibility for it. And even in the news, kind of talking about it, the news shies away from like um, actually calling it what it is. And this is our problem. This is <laughs> our like, human problem. Sound familiar? Mm-hmm. 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 So we find out um, that we, we're basically in a, in a lot of trouble and they have arrived to something where he can like talk about something as if it were the past. Yeah. But, but he's also being very clear that it's not. And we hear from his daughter who uh, basically is, is doing her research, looking through the papers of her parents and looking yeah. for things. And um, so she has this from her father. She also has Lauren's journals, which have, have been saved. Even the ones yes, that she wrote yes. with her with her hand have been um, saved on the disc crystal. 
I love that. Disc crystal. <laughs> like, yes, That's, Octavia. They copied them and they give saved. Give us a disc crystal. Just give it, give <laughs> it to us. And so um, here we are, Sunday, September 26, 2032. And they're having a arrival day, basically a fifth anniversary of the establishment of ACORN. And it's a big celebration. Yeah. And, and everything should be really cool. But Lauren is had a nightmare the night before. Yes. And this nightmare is, is really important. It's basically uh, a way that she's getting to visit a certain energy and era of her life. Mm-hmm. And so um, she's in her old house. They're having a church service. It's packed. Her father is preaching. Mm-hmm. Corey is at the piano. Her little brothers are at an age that's like she kind of describes as a sweet age. Keith is the oldest and he's like at 11. So she has mm. all four of her brothers there and they're sitting next to her and kind of fighting. And she's she's punches them both to get them to stop fighting and doesn't feel any of her hyper empathy. So yeah. she's she's experiencing something that that she never really gets to um, to experience. And you get some background into to who these people are you know, as they as they were in Parable of the Sower. And then she's letting you know how they're appearing in Parable of the Talents Nightmare. Um, yeah. It is, it is, it's a dream that starts off really sweet and then gets really complicated. And we find out that in this dream, the people start to fade away. Her mm. family, her brothers, her father, Corey. And she sees uh, a visitation by her mother, who she can't quite all the way see. Like she just can't quite get it together. And she saw an image of her mother because her father gave her the one picture of it. And Keith being Keith, and this is in, in their real lives, Keith being Keith, um, stole the picture from Lauren and basically like took it outside and drowned it. <laughs> like it got water all over it. And took no responsibility for it. And Lauren beat mm. him up pretty bad. And she didn't care if she if she got, you know, if she felt it or not. And yeah. Keith never told on Lauren. And so she never really got to have a full image of her mother. So this nightmare starts to unfold. And yeah. um, in the telling of it, we get more information about her mom. Her mother never saw her. Her mother died um, as she was giving birth to her. She says before that, for two years, she took the popular smart drug of her time. It was a new prescription medicine called Paracecto, and it was doing wonders for people at Alzheimer's. It stopped their deterioration, and basically the students started to take it because it opened up their minds as they were studying. It helped them read faster and retain more and made more active accurate connections and calculations and conclusions. And that's the drug her mother took that eventually kills her, but also is responsible for Lawrence hyperempathy syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of this is, is swirling around. All of this is going around her, her and the dream, the nightmare is just everything starts to just fade away. Yeah. It, the mother fades away. All yeah. of her people are gone. She really can't get a hold of it. And she says she's usually, you know, feeling like she's going to be screaming or something like that. But she didn't know if she did this time because mm-hmm. Ben Coley wasn't with her. So she didn't know. Yeah. But she woke up 
very, very, very upset and very haunted. Yeah. I think it's so important, you know, hearkening back to Parable of the Sower, that also Mm. opens with this dream that she's trying to understand, a dream which foretells what happens throughout the story. And so I'm really glad you walked us through this nightmare because this nightmare is also prescient, (laughs) you know, that's how how Octavia rolls. And there's a lot in this that is both what she's been through, but I think is also what she's terrified of is Mm -hmm. that she has now regathered, regained community and she wakes up terrified and Ben Coley is not there because he has to, because of her hyper empathy, he has to treat clients outside the home. So he's gone to treat, treat some other clients, but yeah, um, that feeling of waking up alone after losing everyone in the dream feels important. There's also beautiful uh, memories of her father and him preaching the parable of the talents. Um, yeah. And that her father was a great believer in education and hard work and personal responsibility and considered that our talents. And then we start to understand where we are in this in this book. Um, yeah. And that 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 all gets weaved in to part of this this nightmare, these appearances of her of her family. And this you're right. It's like she's grounded by it and haunted by it at the same time. Yeah. And it's like just just fighting through it, you know. And it as makes much so much can. sense. It's like she has hyper empathy, but she this is one of the ways that we get to see she also has so much trauma. She has so much trauma. Like at at almost no point in the parable of the sower does she get to sit and be with all that she's lost. And these kind of dreams absolutely make sense for her to finally be still, to be home, to be five years into building home that she is haunted. Yeah. She absolutely is haunted. Yeah, yeah. She never, she, you know, they have so many rituals. As you see, they're celebrating the anniversary. And we know from the other, other um, Parable of the Sower story that they really sit around and actually talk about things. And she's encouraged people to, to speak. And, and, but they are always moving. They're always, they're always doing something. They're always in action. They're always yes. trying to keep themselves safe. So it is, it's a lot. It's no like, okay, go over here, have a therapy session and, you know, a massage and some acupuncture and like Honey. <laughs> two weeks, I'm like, two weeks of community care. Yeah. yeah well, and it also, you know, the earth seed verse for this one is so telling too, which is we bury our dead. And these are all the people that she didn't get to bury. These are all exactly. the people that she lost who, if they live anywhere now, they live within her memory. Um, yes. And they're buried in her. Yes, yes, yes. Um, the other thing that we find out is more about like what's surrounding their community. So there's there's a whole other community that exists, um, the Dove Tree Place. And basically, yeah. this is a community. It's a family, uh, a husband and a wife, and then they have kids, and then their kids have gotten married, um, and they they grow weed and they make whiskey and. Um, Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Good neighbors, hey? They're, they're our kind of people. Um, so they're up there. So even though they're, you know, Acorn is kind of hidden away. And even though I can think Dovetree is, is, you know, they were there longer. Um, there's yeah. still gangs and things um, that everybody has to be uh, careful of. So everybody is armed and, you know, has built their walls and done the best they can to keep themselves um, safe, um, but they get attacked and they get viciously attacked. 
And the dove trees. The dove trees get attacked. And basically the reason why Bancoli wasn't with Lauren is that he was in a clinic all night taking care of the wounded. And um, the big thing about this this attack is that it's not it's not regular. It's not like yeah. some some group of people who were like, they look like they got something. We need to go and get it. It's an organized attack. It is. Yes. Uh, it had. It was planned. It was strategized. It was. Um, the people mm. are well armed. They knew what they were doing. They knew what they wanted to do, and they basically go and destabilize that that whole their whole business, their whole property, everything. And they have uniforms and. Yeah their uniforms have a cross on them and it's <laughs> it's scary it's, yeah and to coincide with this particular attack is that there is a new election coming up and this election has um i mean i just i just feel like he's the mike pence he's, he's exactly. senator jarrett like, mm-hmm. he's mike pence though andrew Steele jarrett yep Texan. he's yes uh, yeah. And this is where we get to to bring up this um, slogan, make America great again. Um, Jared is join us. Our doors are open to every nationality, every race. Leave your sinful past behind and become one of us. Help us to make America great again. This this man is running for election and simultaneously this little army of people start to show up and um, yeah. and go and terrorize um, communities. So, um, and they call themselves Christian America, right? They call themselves Christian America. So this is this is really disturbing. This is really, really, really hard. And they start to take Lauren starts to take like you know a look at who they are. Um, they have. 59 people at Acorn and 64 um, if the dove trees decide to stay there. And um, yeah. and then she says at the end, my talent, going back to the parable of the talents, is earth seed. And although I haven't buried it in the ground, I have bur- buried it here in these coastal mountains where it can grow at about the same speed as our redwood trees. But what else could I have done if I had somehow been as good at rabble-rousing as Jared is, then Earthseed might be a big enough movement by now to be a real target. And would that be better? Hmm. So good. So good. I feel like we're, we're you know, bang out the gate. <laughs> it's just sort of like, okay, um, guns in the air. And... It feels like Octavia wants us to know that this story is not going to be um, like it's not like Parable of the Sower was easy by any Mm-mm. means, um, but this one is going to. It's like we've got some serious stuff to deal with right away, and we're yeah. still surviving, which I actually think is so important because for me, the landing in Acorn was you know I was like victorious, we have land, yeah. you know, like we've we've made it somewhere, and the actual fight of being on land, holding land, being able to be safe anywhere when such a slow apocalypse is unfolding is it's impossible. And I think she's reminding us that right away. Mm-hmm. Right away. She's so, going into it. Yeah. One thing I re- appreciate about Octavia, because when I read this, 
I read the books back to back because I, I yep. you know, I didn't read it when, and I was devastated by this first chapter. <laughs> yeah, I was like, absolutely. I was devastated by everything. I was like, wait, why is why is her daughter so mad? You know, and um, mm-hmm. but one thing I appreciate as I've read them so many times is her relentlessness. Like she's she is just like no, you sit sit up, like sit up. You know, like, no, you, you, that rest doesn't look like that. Like, it looks like something else. Exactly. It doesn't look like time off or it doesn't look like down. Like, there is no downtime. It's, it, the, the, the level is, is very, very um, high and you need a level of attention to be able to sustain. <laughs> I hear My something. street is fire right now. Pop, pop, pop. Well, basically, motorcycles went down the street and set off the the last two people who have fire um, car alarms. Car alarms. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is. I, I actually every time I think about Acorn, even though it seems busy and there's a lot of people, the quiet of it always strikes me. Like being up and out the woods and away from mm. the life that they had been in in Robledo. And do you want to start? Hearing some questions for this. I would love to. This period. I have missed your questions. Uh, I've missed actually getting to think in in Octavian questions. So mm. I'm excited to be back in the saddle. So my first question, you know, I open this book and then the question comes to me, who will tell your story? Who will tell your story? Mm-hmm. And will they be sympathetic or critical? I don't think it ever occurred to me, this is where I love the way that imagination stretches. Like it never occurred to me that anyone would be in the community of Lauren, much less her child, and not be like, yay, what a genius, Ursi, exciting. Even though almost everyone I know who has an organizer parent <laughs> or you know a parent who's trying to change the world struggles sometimes with the connection, struggles with feeling hell, struggles with having gotten enough from their parent. And we don't know yet why Lauren's child is so critical. But I do think it's important that it's like, this is who's going to tell her story. As far as we know, this is who's, who's going to write the narrative of what happened here. And it makes me think about for each of us as we're living our lives and as we're doing whatever work we feel called to by the universe, who's tracking that? Are we documenting our own selves? And that leads me into my next question, which is, are you keeping an archive of your own life, your thinking, your lessons, your teachings. Mm. Um, I love that even though <laughs> Lauren's daughter is is a critical storyteller, she's referring to the actual journals and what we're getting to see are the actual journals. So it's a dance between Lauren's voice and her daughter's voice mm-hmm. in telling the story. And I feel the tension that gets set up. And I think Octavia is so brilliant for doing this that I read Lauren's voice in a sympathetic ear. And then I'm hearing the critical voice of the daughter as the storyteller and like what that requires as a reader. Mm. But it also really makes me want to just be super solid in my journaling practice. (laughs) You know, just like, am I actually tracking and documenting and reflecting on all the things that are, are happening? You know, right now we're in this kind of slow apocalypse and like, are we actually tracking how we're surviving the pandemic? Are we tracking right. how we got through these last four years, how we've gotten through our lifetimes? And I have that question for you, Toshi. How do you archive your own life? How do you archive your lessons? 
Oh, I took the archive for today workshop. <laughs> and uh when we did um alchemy alchemy of change in yeah. uh in North Carolina and I'm actually trying to find um this sister's name Ch- Chaitra Powell archivist okay. at the uh, UNC's um Wilson library and she okay. had this beautiful workshop and one of the things that each of us had to do was bring something in that we would want to archive and it was amazing uh, so many so wow. many different things but she really was like you know like archive now don't archive like don't wait archive now and then keep the things you would want to keep and get rid of the other stuff you've heard me say <laughs> that she's the one who's like delete those pictures off your yes. phone like you took 10 yes. pictures to get that one they're causing they the cause rest. energy they're they're yes so it's like get rid of it yes. you don't need 20 copies of that one picture <laughs> yep i love She's like that. it's electricity yeah brilliant yeah. brilliant brilliant so yeah i do archive and and i try to try to be like steady with it i try to be like let me take oh yeah i want to make sure i keep this or i want to make sure and then i've been journaling especially during COVID. i have all of these these um moleskin notebooks they're full of all yeah. of the notes i did yeah. and everything i finally ordered some just moleskin you can get them customized oh good yeah so special they special toshi style yeah they say big lovely one on each one mm. yeah i like that mm-hmm. <laughs> i love that yeah i think the the process of archiving i noticed that when i go for my sabbaticals or my writing retreats or my away time it's kind mm. of like the deep dive of my archives and then it'll be like the kind of breaks in the middle and I'm trying to get better at archiving several of my internal processes. So mm-hmm. like now I'm really trying to track like what transformations I make in therapy. Like what do mm. I actually learn about myself that when I look back that I can like start to weave together a story of what I have healed from in my life, what I have grown in my life. And then I'm trying to do a better job of also keeping handwritten notes from the work that I do. So like when I'm in a meeting or gathering or facilitation or something like that, Mm -hmm. that I have something that's handwritten from me that's just like, here's what I learned. Here's what we were thinking. Here's some of the innovations and the breakthroughs of this moment. Mm -hmm. Um, And because I look back and I'm like, oh, like you don't necessarily know when you're in the middle of history making that you're in the middle of it. <laughs> um, That's right. It, it, it gets determined based on what happens later in, or how people look back at a period of time. And there was a moment where I was like, I'm facilitating for BYP 100, Movement for Black Lives, Black Lives Matter, at a m- moment when they are turning the wheel for everything Right. to do with racial justice in the U.S. So even if I don't think of my particular life as historical, there's things that I got to witness that yeah, are historical. Collaborations. Um, and so I'm like, oh, and some of that goes into the books I write, but some of it is just like my own reflections or the notes. You know, like I, I tend to take my own notes for those meetings and I share them with the, the organizers because I'm like, it's actually important to be good note takers. We don't have to be transcriptionist right. but, or transcribers or whatever. Although the work of transcribing is sacred work. <laughs> I yes, think it's it hard and sacred work. But I'm like, but we do need to document those things that we want to be remembered, the decisions we make that we want to remember. And I love 
how much of the acorn process gets remembered. The fact that yes. they have a rival day. I'm like, oh, I want a rival day. I want to create yeah. something that I need an arrival day for. Yeah. You know, there's things like that. that I'm like, <laughs> oh, that's good. So yeah, ask yourselves this question, you know, as you're listening is, are you archiving your own life in your community? Do you have people who are archiving what you're learning and moving and trying on as a community? Maybe in your pandemic pod, you know, you could even sit down. I know this is part of how Michelle Obama did her her book, Becoming. Well, she just had someone who she would sit down once a year and tell stories, like here's mm-hmm. highlights and stories of this past year. So I think the archiving can look a lot of different ways and still be a really relevant exercise. Um, yes. You know, but, I think yeah. about how much brilliance I see on social media. And I always wonder, did they keep that? Or did they like, did they write that someplace else yeah. and then put it on social media? Cause, or is it just on Facebook, you yep. know, corporation? Yeah. Um, I think about yeah. this often. Yeah. <laughs> like if it matters to me, I write it somewhere else. Yeah, y'all, y'all need to... And even publish it somewhere else. You know, like mm-hmm. sometimes I'll just gather up, you know, here's a bunch of prompts and I'll put them on my own blog or my own, something that I have ownership over. Because, yeah. you know, if they decide to go down one day, like, oof, 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 oof. Yeah, or if somebody the takes history. them down. It's it's a battle yeah. out there on the interweb, yep. so. Um, it's like a jungle sometimes. So <laughs> <laughs> my next question is... Do you think we are currently in the pox, right? This this slow apocalypse that combines these multiple crises. I think my my perspective on this is pretty clear. Like I definitely think we're in the apocalypse and like it's it's one of the things, but I love that it is a slow apocalypse in this book. I was in a conversation with Margaret Kiljoy the other day who's a anarchist thinker and designer and writer and was talking about how we don't actually see that many stories of slow apocalypse. So often Mm. when we're looking at stories of apocalypse, it's like some massive, very dramatic thing happens to which everyone then has to suddenly adapt. And instead of recognizing it's like, oh, the climate changed and the economy was (laughs) jacked up and all of that was happening as like these racial uprisings were happening, sociological crises. So I would ask people to think, what are the conditions that we're currently in if you don't think they're apocalyptic? What are they? Where mm-hmm. are we in relative, you know, relationship to this? Because what Bancole is saying is we are in it right now. And we've been in it. And mm-hmm. it's not it's not over anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause it's about our human behavior on the planet. You know, like when exactly. he says it didn't start in 2015, it started long before that. Yeah. And some of our behavior is given permission to continue it. You know, instead of being like, you know, no, that was bad. You know, like the Civil War was bad. So we should never, never, never do that again. (laughs) Like never. Exactly. You know. Yeah. Instead, let's rush back to it. And I think there is something about the refusal to acknowledge the crises, which is Mm -hmm. what leads to the actual conditions impacting everyone to me feels caught up in like, can you even acknowledge what time it is? You know, as Grace Lee Boggs used to say, what time is it on the clock of the universe? Right. What time is it on the clock of the world? Like if it is an apocalyptic time and you're not experiencing apocalypse, it might be more of a statement of your economic status or your otherwise privileged status than it is about what time it is. Yeah. Outside of your gate. 
I would like to drop a link into the Octavia Butler interview on Democracy Now. Um, yes. And, you know, you were wonderful on that. But y'all got to hear Octavia um, talk oh, and what so her great. choices were to, to read. And there's one thing that she reads about the lies. Yes. <laughs> yes. Beware. All too often we say what we hear others say. We think what we are told that we think. We see what we are permitted to see. Worse, we see what we are told that we see. Repetition and pride are the keys to this. To see and to hear even an obvious lie again and again and again may be to say it almost by reflex then to defend it because we have said it and at last to embrace it because we've defended it and because we cannot admit that we've embraced and defended an obvious lie. Thus without thought, without intent, we make mere echoes of ourselves and we say what we hear others say. And that if you lie and you lie and you lie and you lie, then then how what you have to do because you lied another thing, then you have to do this to maintain that you did this because you lied and you have to do this. And it's yeah. how we, we stumble into to more and more epic violence and misuse of our resources and everything else, um, you know, and get 70 million people voting for a, a real, real, real horrific liar. Um, and person who refuses to see reality. So, yeah. Yes. Mm. Good. So my next question, the quality and the details of the dream, the nightmare that Lauren writes about are so clear. Um, and it made me want to ask this. Do you remember and pay attention to your dreams and or nightmares? Do you archive those? Do you journal those and do they inform any part of your waking life? Does that subconscious work inform any part of your waking life? Mm. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah, I think I'm really moved by when you said like that Lauren is is dealing with her people that she she didn't get to bury that, you know, in some way it's like her self acknowledgement of her trauma, of her yeah. of her pain. And, um, you know, I appreciate that we get to see that she's actually has this wound and a lot yeah. of it and, and that, you know, um, and even though she can tell it well, like, even though she can tell it very well, like I'm having this nightmare and this is what it looks like. And it's very, very detailed. And it's like, you know, all of this stuff, it's just, it's just her pain and her sorrow and her yeah. hurt. And there's not a lot of room for it. So it ends up in these, these sleeping places. Yeah. Where she surely actually needs rest. So it's, I appreciate that yeah. she that Octavia was like, no, it's important to show that Lauren is a full human, that she yes. didn't some have some absorbent pocket of um, being able to take that her, you know, most of her family is dead, everybody that she knew. Yeah, I, it's so tender, really, it's so tender. And I also love the timing of it, that 
you know, we meet Lauren in 2024 and this is 2032 and she loses most of the family that, that we know her to have in 2026. Um, so that it's like five, six years of time that are passing. And I think for so many of us, it's a, it's another thing I don't see written very often, but like how long it actually takes mm-hmm. to, to be in grief, to make room for grief and both the things that help us hold the grief at bay and the things that bring it closer. And mm-hmm. I really love actually the thing of like, well, I don't have these dreams when Bancoli is around. No. Um, and in some way, that's a good thing, right? Like, oh, huh, you know, when, when I'm sharing a bed with my beloved, you know, I feel safer or whatever happens and I don't have these. But that doesn't mean that the grief doesn't need to be dealt with. And it's kind of like the grief waits until Bancoli is away to slip in to her dreams and be like, we're still here, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, even though you have found comfort and company and community and land and home, um, we're, we're still with you. We're still here. Um yeah. Um, I have two final questions. One is, you know, so when people hear make America great again phrase in this book, um, especially since we just lived through the 45 administration and that was their slogan, <laughs> I think that the instinct is to say Jarrett is is like that. You know, Jarrett is, is like 45. I love that you were like, actually, I see him as more of like a Pence character. But then I remember that, you know, she was writing this in the 90s and she was writing this in relationship to like a Reagan character. Mm-hmm. And I think about how, you know, we kind of go back and forth between like this one's a bad president, this one's a good president, whatever. But there's something about this that feels like, you know, this is an American <laughs> president. Mm-hmm. Like this is someone who follows the trends of of American supremacy and the the undying relationship between um, the Christian right and American governance. So I want to ask our readers, uh, listeners and co-readers, you know, do you feel that the use of the slogan here and the description of these presidents suits the leaders that we see and hear now? Do you feel like she is imagining a kind of leader that we haven't quite seen yet? Like what kind of president, who comes to mind when you read and imagine Jarrett? Mm -hmm. Um, Basically, is he in our past or our future? <laughs> mm-hmm. And then my final question, and this one is tender for me to ask. This this book is so tender for me to read every time. But the question is, do you believe that having land would or does create safety for you and your community? Do you believe that having land would or would will create or does create safety for you and your community? I know that for many of us, for me, for many years, I have dreamed that like if I just had land, if we just had a place of our own, we would be safe. Um, And I feel like, you know, this first chapter is like, puts that in question. Are they safe because they have acorn or not? Mm -hmm. That's a great question because I I really think the only safety is to get the people to stop being so, so... um, violent that's the only one that eventually that i think the more you have the more time you buy if you know if this if it starts to if the wave um gets stronger and starts to increase it's the more time that you can buy because they bought a lot of time in robledo um because they had they they were able to form a community and and chip in and all get that wall but eventually it, it it you it can't 
the stakes are too high. So the land is the land is the people. The people is the land. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I think there's something there's something I'm really curious about the relationship between land and culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so those who own the land in some way get to set the culture of that place. And at what point do you have enough people setting a culture that it becomes a tipping point? Um, mm. Because we've never really gotten enough land to set the culture away from, you know, mm-hmm. the segregationist, you know, radical right, KKK South, <laughs> right? Like somehow still the landowners throughout the yeah. South um, hold a politic that keeps uprising and keeps uprising and keeps uprising. And I'm like, would that be different if we had more indigenous and black ownership of land to create a culture? So. You know, I think it's a question. I think it's a, a live question that a lot of us are in and trying to figure out right now. Because I definitely want. <laughs> I'm like, where's my? I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm you to should have find some. right relationship to a land. I'm, that's beautiful what you just said. Mm-hmm. Because I think also I do feel this enormous rise of um, wonderfulness, um, this yes. uh, uprising of of beautiful talent since we're in parable of the talents and uprising of, <laughs> of practitioners who are medicine people and spiritually like more in turn with the universe and the planet. And it, it makes it like, it makes all of the violence seem ridiculous. Like it makes it really, I mean, it always has been, but it's like, I feel our, um, there's just so much great, you know, useful power and yes. when you when I see the the other things, I'm like, why are you doing that? Like, it literally no, it really literally irrelevant. feels like a maturation process that happens and just doesn't mm. happen for everyone. Because I I feel like the older I get, the less I want to be fighting anyone for survival. The more I want to be in collaboration, the more I want to be deeply rooting into mm-hmm. a place that I will be buried and that my people will know you know, as long of a relationship as we can know with the earth. But I think of it as that maturation because I'm like, yeah, but when I was a toddler, you know, I would fight over a toy or fight over, you know, (laughs) some territory of the preschool or something, right? Like, because that's a stage of development. And, but it's like so many of our species get stuck in that stage of development and never continue with their maturation. And, um, you know, I'm like, well, if people get stuck, how do we still love them and make room for them? Do we still make room for them? How do we still make room for them? You know, and there's mm. there's a distinction between those who know not what they do, and then those who choose, who learn and make a different choice, um, and who choose to commit to the bullying. You know, they're given another path and they commit. And I think all of that—that's what this book is. You know, that's what this yeah. this is the waters we're going to be swimming in right now is. Is how do we how do we keep growing as a species um, when we're being held back by that that bullish tendency? Yeah, can I ask you one question? You can ask me anything, Toshi. Uh, um, what do you think about like right now the the kind of like surprise that the media is having that so many people who participated in the coup attempt like have money <laughs> and property? Oh yeah, <laughs> you know uh, yeah. what I mean, like. They're they're like yeah. they have like we, like what do you think of that? Because I'm like I mean I think that this is one of the most um, pernicious lies of capitalism, which is that wealth gives you grace, intelligence, class. You know that that wealth connects in some way 
to, mm-hmm. again, this maturity, <laughs> right? Yeah. Instead of understanding that the opposite is actually the case. Like there's a way, the more resources you have, the more you have to be disconnecting from your humanity in order to attain them. I, that's what I think about, you know, how big, big money works because there's an amount where you're like, oh, this is enough or this is enough and I'm giving to my community. Now, that, you know, and then there's mm. the people who go so far beyond that where there's no satisfaction. They don't know what it would be to be satisfied. They don't, right. they can't even imagine that. It's just a constant, like my, my, my penis is bigger than yours. My land is bigger than yours. My cars are bigger than yours. My daughters are prettier than yours. Like just this kind of, um, I think of it as a lost soul, you know, mm. a lost soul competition. <laughs> and so I think the press being surprised, I feel like the, in some ways the press has like been conditioned to not look under the surface. And so there's this constant surprise at all kinds of things. And I'm like, why are you surprised that racism is still happening? Why are you surprised yeah. that, you know, that they didn't decide to charge that person who killed that black person? Like, why are you surprised? Um, and, and my sister Autumn has been writing brilliantly about this white double consciousness that mm. desire to like know and, and behave in a racist way, but then always want to be able to pull the like, oh, I, I can't believe this, you know, this kind of like shocked, like, I just don't understand, like, where can I learn about this? Like, why? And that is the way that white supremacy is able to persist and persist and persist because it's a perpetual surprise for white people that they are being racist. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. And this, that feels connected to me. It's just like this perpetual surprise that wealthy people are actually stealing from all of us and taking advantage of us. And that that is not a mature emotional condition. And so if you have this president for four years who has absolutely been, you know, the one consistent thing he did was, was like ride for the super wealthy and like mm-hmm. create policy and bend policy and bend the rules to make sure that the super wealthy had their needs met. And when they realized they were losing their, their person, um, all the parts of them that are like having money means I have all the power. All of that was challenged. You know, we're pulling the rug out from them and saying there's power in other places too. Uh, so yeah, that's, that was my take on it. What's your take on it? What do you think? Mm, I agree with a, a lot of what you say. I I feel like, you know, mediocrity um, mm. <laughs> in all of you know, the ways that we are, you know, um, needing to rise through the challenge of our times is, is terrible. It's like, you can't, you know, you can see that when, you know, people, and, and, and I'm talking that, I'm talking about commercial media. Um, yeah. And, yeah, and absolutely. not all, everybody. But I, you know, when the <laughs> not election, our people, <laughs> not our people, yo. <laughs> but but you know, people really and start to get afraid that Trump yeah. would win. You know, the the media shifted a little bit. Like it really was yeah. like, you know, well, we're just going to call out every lie and we're going to do this and this. But then it, you know, decided to forget that Pence actually was in charge of COVID. Yes. You know, Pence was yes. in charge of COVID. Like he yes. was in charge of COVID the whole time. It's like Pence well, had one job. Yeah, that was Pence his job. was in charge of COVID. That's what he's like. <laughs> he failed miserably, yes. and yes, and, and he could have said at any point, like, you know what, I have great ideas, but the president won't let me live. You know, <laughs> if that was right. the truth, like That's he right. could have said That's it, but right. he didn't. He followed behind. Mitch McConnell followed behind. All of yeah. these people followed behind, and so the the, the media is like. 
desire to try to settle into a normalcy and like, you know, so let's let Mitch <laughs> off. Let's let Pence be the vice president who had to run for his life because his president sent a mob to kill him. Like, yes. let's, that's yes. his thing. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, Mm-mm. it's And it's I, be, so, I love that it's like, you're talking to a populist, like we read 1984. Like we, yeah. we expect the media to do this flip-flop flipping of stories, but we also, we track our own data now too. Yeah. And this is why I'm so, I'm grateful for the community journalist. I'm grateful for, absolutely. you know, Black Twitter. I'm grateful for the folks who are like, mm, we yeah, have no. receipts. No, and you we see the media scramble Here's what Ted up. Cruz said back here. Here's what happened. Yeah. We, we got it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? And the media, like the, 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 you know, commercial media scrambles up behind you know, quotes, black Twitter, just, there needs to be a black Twitter fund, honestly. Honestly, <laughs> Toshi, I love that idea. <laughs> the black Twitter fund. <laughs> like, and then everybody yes. just kind of get withdrawals, you know? Um, yes. Yeah, I'm appreciating it. Also, just the, the constant leading with the stock market as if that's the economy. And, uh-huh. that's right. <laughs> and leaving, that's right. leaving every single thing out. I was just like, come on. Come on, me. No, it makes me long for that future. You know, I lift up movement generation often, but they talk about economy as the management of home. Mm-hmm. And I often feel this yearning of like, you know, and I think democracy now does this. I think some places do this, yeah. but of what would it look like for our media to be shaped around a grounded assessment of our management of home, you know, our management of of our economy, like at the level of who has home. Who needs home? How is that going? Who has the work that helps them to have home? Um, how do we make sure that you don't you're not required to work to have home? Yes. Um, how are we attending to the climate and the land and the the you know water of home? All those things. So I'm excited. Um, as I'm saying this, I'm rem- reminded that Movement Generation is also starting a podcast <laughs> this season. All right. So uh, maybe there'll be maybe there'll be some some chance for a dance together overlap, but. Yeah, I love that question, Toshi. And yeah. I think we did good for this prologue, chapter one. That's right. Getting back on the... Getting back into like we're it. double dutching. And I'm like, yes, look at us. We yeah. still got it. <laughs> All right. So Octavia's Parables is hosted by Toshi Regan and myself, Adrian Marie Brown. We are produced by Kat Aaron. And we might have some support this season. We'll let you know um, if we do. Uh, additional support. Our show art is by Krista Franklin. Music for Octavia Parables is Always See the Stars, written and performed by Toshi Regan. God is Change, performed by Toshi Regan and Bernice Johnson Regan, written by Toshi Regan. I love it. Yes. I love it. Claim it, baby. So find us on Twitter at O Parables. You can sustain our show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Oh, parables. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye. All that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. All that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. All that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting All that you touch, you change. All that you change, change is you. The only lasting truth is change. All that you touch, you change. All that you change, change is you. The only lasting truth is change. All that you touch, you change. All that you change, change is you. The only lasting truth is change. All that you touch, you change. All that you change, change is
that you touch, you change, all that you change, change is you, the only last thing.